morning, Southwinds. You will want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8 as we are continuing our journey through the book of Acts, as we are learning what it means to be a sent people. And today's message is called On Mission because Acts 8 gives us a very clear picture of how early Christ followers went on mission as they were scattered and as they were sent into their world to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, you need to know as we're traveling through this book that Acts 8 begins a new phase in Luke's narrative. And maybe you remember last fall uh, when we began exploring Acts, I, I told you that Acts 1-8 was the key verse of the entire book because Acts 1-8 gives us uh, our mission as Christ followers, that we are sent. And I also told you that Acts 1-8 outlines the book of Acts. Uh, it says that we are to be witnesses to Jesus starting in Jerusalem as his people and then uh, his people are to go to the nearby regions of Judea and Samaria, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And if you look at the Acts structure, you will see Acts 1 through 7 shows us the mission in Jerusalem. But now as we're in Acts 8 through Acts 12, we're going to see the mission in Judea and Samaria. And then in Acts 13 through 28, uh, we're going to see how Paul takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, Acts 8 shows us a very crucial biblical theme, and it is this, how God uses an ordinary Christ follower, Philip, not an apostle or church leader, but what we would call a layman, and that's a term that just means someone not ordained to vocational ministry. Philip's just a regular guy, but God uses him to cross cultural and racial barriers with the gospel. And so we begin to see in Acts 8, the, the gospel is spreading. It's spreading geographically. We are reminded as we, we work through this chapter that God calls all of us into mission. And it's right where we live, or it may be leaving home, it may be traveling even around the world. We are always, as God's people, sent. And I'm sure that some of us here right now have never, ever really considered that. Maybe you're someone who's thought of missions as this special calling for, you know, well, like special forces Christians, highly trained, highly skilled specialists, elites. But missions, missions is just what Jesus followers do. It's just how we're supposed to live. In fact, Jesus tells all his followers what he told those first followers in Matthew 4, 19. He says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In fact, the call to salvation and the call to the Great Commission happens simultaneously. Have you ever thought about that? You are called to salvation and commissioned to serve all in the same moment. And it's always been that way with all of God's people. Back when God called Abraham, book of Genesis, right at the beginning of God's work in this world, he told Abraham to follow him. And when he did that, he also told Abraham in the same conversation that he would use him to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. You know that the word missionary never appears in the Bible? It's a word we, we've made up. Now, sent ones appears frequently and it's a, a phrase that applies to every Christ followers. We, we see missionaries as this special class, but biblically, actually, that class doesn't even exist. Sent ones is the class, and everyone's in that class. Some of you know that we just had a, a team of Southwinders who did some mission work this week, not very far from here 
in Novato. And it's fitting, I think, today as we are working through Acts that we come to this place and we get this chance to consider what God is calling each of us to do. Maybe for some of us, it's just praying about the possibility of going on some kind of short-term mission trip. Maybe you've never been. And some of you, you know God wants you to go. Or others, though, it may be more. Maybe God is calling someone, even in this room right now, to go into vocational ministry to serve him in that way. Or maybe God is calling someone to move somewhere around the world, to serve God there, to relocate your life. Whatever the case, here's what is true for everyone. God always calls all of us who know him to get involved with praying and get involved with supporting And get involved with sharing the good news with people right where we live. Now, you're going to notice today we have kind of a different structure for the message than we typically do. And here's how it's going to go. I'm going to read some verses. We've got an entire chapter to cover. And then I'm going to make some observations for you to write down. And we're just going to work our way uh, through the passage like that. We'll begin with verses 1 through 8. Here's what Luke writes. He says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, there's so much here that we're going to have to pass by, but I want to start by having you write this down. God uses ordinary people to carry out his mission. That's the main thing I want you to see as we begin. Luke opens this chapter, and it's the first time that the gospel leaves Jerusalem, and we see that it's the apostles are not the ones who carried it. Verse 1 says, except the apostles. Everyone else went. Why include that detail? Well, Luke doesn't tell us what the apostles did when they stayed, so it seems his focus was on what those who left did. They were the ones who took the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And I think the Holy Spirit is telling us how he intends to accomplish the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to be accomplished as all believers are mobilized and active. We all share in the task of sharing the good news. And it has always been that way, and it will always be this way. A church always grows best when ordinary people, that's all of us, tell other ordinary people about Jesus. That's God's plan. It always has been. It always will be. Here's the second thing I want you to write down. Carrying out God's mission takes both words and actions. Now Luke says that Philip proclaimed the Christ there. He also says Philip did miraculous signs. So people heard what he had to say, but then they saw what he did, these signs. And verse 7 says, with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many uh, paralytics and cripples were healed. This reminds us that a, a true witness always involves both word and deed. It has to involve word because the gospel in its essence is an announcement about what Jesus has accomplished. 
You cannot communicate the gospel without a verbal witness. But good news always should include action. This means in this context, they demonstrated things about the gospel by means of miracles or or by the way they love people, or by the way they they live. Now, I don't have the time today to explain this in depth. I just want to point out that it is both word and deed. That's why we sent people to help uh, after Hurricane Harvey. That's why we received an offering for disaster relief for Santa Rosa fire victims. That's why we sent a team this week who served in Nevada. That's why others will go in the future. It's word. It's deed. It's both. Write this down too. This comes from verse 8. When God's people carry out his mission, it brings joy to their city. It brings joy to the city. There was great joy in that city in Samaria. So here's a question for us today. Is there great joy in Tracy and in Mountain House and in Lathrop, wherever we live, because of Southwind's church? Now, again, I can't linger at this point, but I want you to think about it. Do, do our lives individually and does our life corporately as a church bring joy to those around us by the ways that we serve, by the ways that we love? Now, many of us are doing that, and I am grateful for all that all of us do, and God wants even more of us to jump in and more of us to serve. God wants more of us to bring even more joy to the neighborhoods, the communities, the cities where we live. One more thing I want you to see here. It's related to joy. A great source of joy in this city was the reconciliation of ethnic groups, of races. And one of the things we see in Acts 8 is only the power of the gospel can bring reconciliation between races. Now again, Philip was a Jew and the people of Samaria were Samaritans. And hatred and mistrust, if you know biblical history, you're aware that hatred and mistrust had existed between these two groups for almost a thousand years. So the Samaritans were people who were half Jewish and they were half Gentiles. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know the Jewish people were really big into purity. I mean, they wouldn't even wear mixed clothing. That's clothing made of different fabrics, much less. They wouldn't accept a a group of like half-blood muggles. They're just not going to do that. The Jewish people would not so much as sit on something that a Samaritan had touched. In fact, when they traveled to get from the north of their country to the south, Samaria's right in the middle. They would go all the way around Samaria, so they didn't have to walk through it, add an entire day of travel to their trip. But the Samaritans, they weren't the nicest people either. Over the years, the Samaritans antagonized the Jews in all kinds of ways, uh, spanning from the the comical uh, to the cruel. When when people in the north wanted to communicate to people in the south about important meetings, they had this series of mountains where they had uh, uh, placed uh, buildings where they could light fires up on top. You know, like Lord of the Rings. And and so they would light the fires, and they would, the signal would go down, and they would know something was up. Well, sometimes the Samaritans would go to one of these mountains, and they would capture the people there, and they would send out fake smoke signals, and everybody would light their, their fires up all the way down, and everybody would go to Jerusalem, and they would say, what's up? And the Jerusalem people would say, uh, nothing. <laughs> and it was like a joke they played on him. And there are other stories of how they did things like they would... The Samaritans would launch pigs over the wall into the temple. The pigs would splatter, 
and defile the temple. Uh, right before Passover, they like to do this. It kind of sounds like bad college pranks, except people died. Uh, at times, the Samaritans attacked pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, and, and people just loaded up with gifts they were bringing to the temple, and then the Jews would retaliate by destroying the Samaritans' temple. This hatred ran very deep. So here in Acts 8, we have a Jew named Philip, and he goes to Samaria, and he is embraced by the Samaritans when they believe there was this great joy in the city. And this, this account is telling us that the gospel, the gospel can create a unity that overcomes years of hurt and mistrust. It is a kind of unity that I think we all long for, but we just seem powerless to accomplish in our society. Not too long ago, an African-American sociologist was talking about race, and he said, we know how to forcibly integrate society. We know how to pass laws to guarantee for fairness. What we haven't been able to do is make races and cultures love and embrace each other. And this story reminds us that what politics cannot do, the good news can. How? Think of it this way. The gospel identifies one common problem that all people have, and that problem is sin. The gospel shows us one Savior, the only Savior that we need, all of us, and that Savior is Jesus. Therefore, out of that, the gospel creates a new humanity, what, what some people have called a third race. Think of it like this. If you are a Latino, that would be your first race. And if you live in a culture where the majority of the people are white, that's a second race. But if you are a Christ follower, then you are in Christ and you become part of that third race. Whatever your first race is, you become part of that new humanity. And the gospel says that should outweigh everything else. It doesn't erase our our first culture. It it just outweighs it because it is more important. You see, what we are, all of us, in Christ lasts forever. What we are here on this earth, everything else is just temporary. It's going to pass away. And so when we we actually live the gospel, our, our new humanity outweighs our cultural and ethnic differences. It outweighs anything that would separate us, our cultural preferences, mistrust, hurt from the past. And part of how we know the gospel is taking root in our lives is when we begin to care more about the gospel, more about Christ's body than we care about our cultural and our racial preferences. You see, a church is supposed to be a group of people of different races and different cultures who have found unity together, not because they see everything the same, not because they agree on everything, but because they have found something so weighty, so significant, Jesus, that nothing else in comparison really matters. Now, here's what I want us to think about. If the gospel overcame their difficulties, couldn't it overcome ours? Couldn't it overcome ours? Our hope, our hope, our only hope in life and in eternity for everything is always, always the gospel. Do not miss what we see here, this unbelievable power of the gospel to reconcile anything and anyone, even people groups that have warred 
for a thousand years. Look at verse 9 following. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. So we meet this guy named Simon, and Simon is like a self-proclaimed great guy. He's called great by whom? Well, he gave himself that name. I'm Dr. Awesome, he said. And he practiced sorcery. This is probably some mashup of, of a real scientific knowledge in areas like astronomy and mathematics and, and medicine, also superstition, uh, using amulets and, and charms and, and interpreting dreams and, and horoscopes, and then just magic tricks, sleight of hand. Today, a guy like him, he would be the equivalent of the people who read crystals or use horoscopes or, or claim that they, you know, saw the Virgin Mary crying and they collected her tears in a bottle and they will sell them to you for healing. Or maybe someone who said that he saw Jesus' face in a grilled cheese sandwich and he named it Grilled Jesus and he will sell it to you on eBay for the buy now price of $10,000. See, Simon, don't, don't think of Simon as this positive character Don't think of him like a sorcerer, say like Gandalf, who's come in to rescue the poor little hobbits. He's more like Sauron. He's more like, say, Darth Vader, you know, from the evil empire. He's a representative of the dark side, maybe like Bill Belichick. I don't know. (laughs) We don't know. We don't know what Simon actually did. And the implication that we're meant to see is that in some way he was demonically empowered. But here's the real point. Uh, When Philip came preaching the gospel and healing people by God's power, the people in Samaria knew this was something different. Because Philip's miracles didn't point to how great Philip was. They pointed to how great Philip's Savior was, a Savior who could forgive sins and heal souls. Now, we're told... That even Simon believed and was baptized, and he started hanging around Philip. You need to kind of keep that to the side here. We're going to see more about what that really means in a moment. Look at verses 14 and following. Again, Luke writes, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, Real real quick question. Why was the Holy Spirit not conferred immediately when they believed? This is like the only time after Pentecost that the Holy Spirit's coming is delayed, and I think the answer is pretty straightforward. Uh, After all these centuries of hostilities between the Jews and the Samaritans, God wanted it made so clear to both sides that Christ's body was meant to be one. He wanted it made clear that all peoples were to be included, even the hated Samaritans. 
And so the apostles were called to come and and they, they confirmed that the Samaritans had indeed received the gospel and that they were part of Christ's body. Look at verses 18 and following. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now, there's a lot here, and we could spend a lot of time here, but I just want to focus in on one thing. I want you to see that this story is included here, I think, as a warning to us. It's especially a warning for a church that's growing and for the people that are part of that kind of a growing church. And here is the warning spelled out. Not everyone who believes and is baptized is a real disciple. See, even with the best preaching Sometimes there are false conversions, even with someone like Philip. Verse 13 says Simon believed, was baptized, was even in this kind of discipleship relationship with Philip. But we see at the end that Simon, quote, believed without truly believing. We don't know exactly what was in his heart and mind. But it seems like as you read between the lines that his faith was in the miracles, not in the miracle working God. It seems like he was more interested in the gifts rather than just the the giver of the gifts. When we look at Simon and what we see is someone who wanted to keep his old life and then bring Jesus in alongside that to, you know, make that better. He wanted Jesus, but he still wanted to keep his sorcery. He still wanted to keep his fame and his prestige. And the warning for us is right here. See, if we find ourselves thinking of Jesus as, you know, the one who makes my life better without truly turning my whole life upside down, if we find that we want to keep our old lifestyle pretty much intact, if we find that we're thinking that Jesus is for Sundays but not really for Mondays, if we find that we think the Bible is kind of a, you know, like book of best spiritual practices that we can pick and choose the things we like from, then Simon is a warning to us. And we need to ask ourselves, and some of us need to ask this question, have I believed without truly believing? See, you've either given Jesus full control or you haven't given him control at all. Whenever Jesus calls people to follow him, he always says, take up your cross and die. The true gospel always demands everything. And that means if you want Jesus to come and save you and forgive you and fix you, but not really touch your family in the way you live, not really touch your sexuality, not really touch your greed or your anger, not really touch the way you work and the way you treat other people, then you're like Simon. See, have you come to the place where you have said, Jesus, you're the Lord. You make the rules. I'm all yours. Maybe this morning in this room right now, there's someone here who's like Simon. Maybe you've added Jesus to your life, but you're not truly born again. Jesus said, if any man would come after me and follow me, he must 
take up his cross. And taking up a cross means total death. You cannot be partially in control. As someone said, in everyone's heart, there is a throne and a cross. And if you're on the throne, Jesus is on the cross. But if Jesus is on the throne, then you must be on the cross. And that means death to everything. That means Jesus is Lord. Have you surrendered to Jesus? That's what Simon's story warns us about and challenges us with. Let's move to the rest of this chapter because the scene is going to shift now. And in verses 26 through 29, we read, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, Gaza uh, was this nasty, little out-of-the-way town. Maybe like, I don't know, something you'd find down in some lonely corner of the Central Valley, probably somewhere around Bakersfield, I think. Nobody really wants to live there. You know, you just pass through, and when you pass through, all you see is a gas station, a video store, and a nail salon. That's all that's there. It's the kind of place, you know, where policemen hide behind billboards, and they nail you with speeding tickets, and while they've pulled you over, and they're writing you a ticket on the side of the road, you're looking around, and you're saying, what are they trying to protect around here? I mean, not that this has ever happened to me. But Gaza's that kind of town. And on top of that, it's a Philistine town. And you remember the Philistines, right? I mean, they are not friends with the Jewish people either. I mean, who is the most famous Philistine of all? His name starts with G. It rhymes with Goliath. Goliath. So they've been enemies for a long, long time. So, so Gaza is this nasty, dirty little town. It's filled with Philistines. And here's the bottom line. God's mission will take you out of your comfort zone. Have you ever noticed that? It's way out of the comfort zone for a Jew like Philip. And on top of that, it's very inconvenient to get there. Philip had to walk as much as 100 miles. You know, sometimes people go to serve God and they complain about the inconvenience of it. You know, like you go on a mission trip and it's like, oh yeah, we had a 14-hour flight and we had a three-hour layover and I think you get to heaven, Philip's going to say, oh, yeah, well, I had to walk 100 miles, so you should deal with it, you know? Verse 27, he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, again, uh, today, Ethiopia is a small country, but in that day, Ethiopia basically referred to everything in Africa uh, south of the Nile River, uh, what was called Upper Egypt and, and farther south. It's this huge area, and he was the treasurer of the entire region. He's a very powerful man. He's royalty. Now, eunuch means that he'd been castrated because back then, if you worked in the palace with the queen, uh, they wanted to make sure that you didn't get any frisky ideas. And if you have any questions about that, I'm just letting you know Pastor Jay has volunteered. He'll be out in the courtyard. He's ready to answer any questions you might have to explain that in more depth, okay? So you can check with him. Now, Luke says this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And we don't really know much about him. For whatever reason, he's curious about the God of the Jews, we know that at this time there would have been lots of religions in Ethiopia. They would worship things like the sun and the moon and the animals. And I don't know, maybe this guy had the sense there was more to life. Maybe something told him 
that the sun, the moon, and the animals were wonderful things, but they couldn't be the source of everything. Somehow, maybe he'd heard about this God of the Jews, a different kind of God, a God separate from his creation, a God from whom everything came, a God who actually got involved in caring for his creation. And maybe he wanted to know about that God. And so he travels to Jerusalem to learn. Verse 28 says, and on his way home, he was sitting in this chariot. Now, real quick, chariot, you maybe watch Gladiator and you think of a chariot as like that that, you know, little semicircle, half turtle shell kind of a thing where you stand up and you hold the reins. This is not that. Uh, the journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem was around 1,200 miles, and this guy is royalty. He is not riding 1,200 miles standing up. This would have been more like a, a couch surrounded by a huge carriage hoisted onto eight guys' shoulders. That's what you need to think of. And so he's up there. He's going down the road, being carried. He's reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And verse 29 says, The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, we don't know exactly how the Spirit speaks this to Philip, but one of the things we see repeatedly in Acts is the Holy Spirit speaking to the church and not just to the apostles, but to regular people like Philip. And this is a really key thing in getting the church where the church needs to be. In fact, the Spirit is mentioned 59 times in Acts, and about 40 of those times he is speaking. So here's my question today. Do you know and walk with the Holy Spirit this way? Are you ever aware of him speaking to you? Go ahead and write this down. God will guide us as we carry out his mission. And he does this in so many different ways. Sometimes in Acts, it's through a word of prophecy given by someone else in the church. Sometimes it's a divine vision. Sometimes it seems to just be this divine yearning that God puts in people's hearts. But are you ever aware that the Spirit is speaking to you? But when was the last time you had any sense that he was sending you to a place or calling you to do something or, or putting someone on your heart to speak with and, and share with? And here's the real question, are you even listening? See, what happens in our lives may not turn out and may not happen the way that it does in Acts. Not exactly. But do you really think that the only book that records the church's experience of following the Spirit has nothing in common with ours? Many of us aren't even listening. We're not even, we're not even aware. And we, we tend to think of God as some absentee teacher who gave us an assignment 2,000 years ago, and one day he's going to show back up and give us the final exam. But that's not the way God ever intended it to work. God not only gave us the great commission to do for him, he wants us to do it with him. Look at verses 30 and following. It says, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And I was just thinking, you know who was really ticked off about that? It's like the eight guys carrying this thing on their shoulders. And they're, they're thinking, are you kidding me now? I mean, we like 1,200 miles and we're inviting hitchhikers in. I mean, what's up? Well, here's what you should see. In the midst of all that we've been reading about at the beginning of the chapter, all that's going on in Samaria, all the big crowds, all the people coming to Jesus, 
coming to faith, becoming disciples. God calls Philip, who's leading this, out of that. He calls him to walk 100 miles down a dusty road to a nasty little town called Gaza because he has been preparing one guy. One guy. Write this one down. God may interrupt your life for the sake of just one person. And you know this had to be confusing for Philip. It's like, God, what are you doing? But God was about to do something really awesome. And there may be some of you right there right now. You can't figure out why things are going the way you are. I'm just telling you today, it might be about something a lot bigger than you. Sometimes God rearranges your life for something bigger, and it may not make much sense. Now, at the same time, we know God has been preparing this Ethiopian eunuch, and he brings Philip to him. And maybe, maybe that same part has been happening to you. Maybe God has been preparing you to hear something, putting questions in your heart. And you don't really know where those questions came from, questions about life, questions about God. Maybe your kids are asking questions, or maybe you're looking at your kids and it's causing you to ask questions. Maybe it just seems random, but it's actually really not. And then God sends this Philip-type person into your life to guide you. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you're here with them today. Maybe they invited you to come. I'm telling you, if that's happening, it's not random. God is trying to get your attention. You know, some of you Christians are saying, why does this kind of stuff never happen to me? Well, maybe you've never put yourself out there. Maybe you're not listening. Maybe you haven't made yourself available. Maybe you need to pray, God, I want to be used. And so I'm making myself available. My ears are open. I'm listening. Will you put me in places where there are Ethiopian eunuchs? And then will you tell me when it's time to talk? Now, if you're here today, and you're not a Christ follower, I I just want to tell you, none of this is random. God has been seeking you the same way that he was seeking this Ethiopian eunuch. And I know some of you are now saying, you know, (laughs) this is what I hate about you Christians. You're always trying to convert us. Well, yes, we are. (laughs) Okay, cat's out of the bag. We are. (laughs) We are trying to convert you. Why? Because like Philip, we believe Jesus died for your sins and our sins. We believe that he rose from the dead. We believe that he can save you, that he's the only way for anyone to be saved and to know eternal life. We believe that Jesus came to this earth to live and die so that he could show everyone the best way to live, both in this world and forever. And we want you to know that. We're not going to try to force you to believe. No one's going to twist anyone's arm. But we do believe God brought you here for a reason. It's not an accident. Verse 32, the eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from this earth. Now, this is a quotation from Isaiah 53, which was written about Jesus uh, over 700 years after his birth. Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would be 
Like a lamb led to slaughter, he'd be accused wrongfully of crimes he didn't commit, but he wouldn't defend himself. And of course, this came true. Jesus stands before Pilate, accused of terrible crimes, and though he is innocent, he didn't say a thing. Why? Why didn't Jesus open his mouth and defend himself? He was innocent. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't defend himself because he was there to die. He was there to pay for our sins, to die the death we deserve to die. As Isaiah says, he would be wounded for my transgressions. He would be bruised for not my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace would be on him. And by his stripes, I would be healed. See, Isaiah 53 is about the fact that the eunuch and all who have sinned, and that's everyone, that Jesus stood in our place. Verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And I want to tell you one of the reasons I think the, the, the eunuch really wants to know the answer to this question. Because probably when he got to Jerusalem, there would have been a sign in front of the outer court of the temple that said, no lame, no blind, no eunuchs can enter here. He had gotten to the temple after all that travel and he couldn't even walk into the outer court of the Gentiles because they believed that he was defiled, that being a eunuch was a sign of God's judgment and so he was turned away. But now he's curious. Maybe here's why. Maybe he had read these words from three chapters down, Isaiah 56, 3 to 5, where Isaiah said, let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And maybe he read that and maybe he thought there is hope for me. Maybe after he started working for the queen, he had regretted his decision. He'd given up so much to work for her. And now he thinks I'm cut off forever from God. And I know today, right now in this room, there is someone I'm talking to who feels just like this man. And you look at your life and you look at the scars and the terrible decisions you have made and all the things in your life that you regret and you find yourself thinking, God would never let me into his presence. But God's word says, he was wounded for your transgressions, bruised, For your iniquities. So let not the eunuch say, I am cut off from God forever. Let not the adulterer say, I am cut off from God forever. Let not the addict say, I am cut off from God forever. Let not the prisoner say, let not anyone who has made a mess out of their lives say, I am cut off from God forever, for he has borne our transgressions, even though all we like sheep have gone astray. Verse 35 says, Philip then began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. See, God put Philip and the eunuch together for a reason, and here it is. It applies today. God wants to work through you 
to bring salvation to others. So are you open? Are you available? I want you to look at the final section very quickly, verses 36 through 40. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Notice this. Salvation requires trust in the good news, and baptism should always follow. You see, salvation is not complicated. It is simple. It doesn't require a ceremony or a church service or a priest or a pastor. It is just an offer God makes. Jesus died in your place. And if you will trust him for your salvation, his finished work becomes yours. See, salvation is basically two declarations. Number one, Jesus died in my place and paid for all my sins. Number two, Jesus is Lord. And the decision is very simple. You believe Jesus did it all in your place, so you trust him. You believe that he is Lord, and so you surrender to him in repentance. Maybe you could compare it to sitting in a chair. You're all sitting in chairs right now. That chair you're sitting in, a few moments ago, you made a decision to trust in that chair. You decided you would no longer trust your legs, but you would sit down in the chair. And the truth is you can be in only one of two relationships to that chair, either standing in your own strength or resting in the chair. In the same way, you can be in only one of two relationships to Jesus, sitting down, resting trusting everything that he did as what is necessary for your salvation, or you can just keep on standing, you can just keep on trying, you can just keep on hoping that you will somehow be good enough to earn your acceptance before God. You're trying to control your life. Those are the only two options. And this guy, he said, I want to be seated in Jesus. Here's water. Because baptism is the next step of obedience to Jesus after you've trusted him. Verses 39 and 40 says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. What happened to Philip? I don't know. This sounds sort of like uh, beam me up, Scotty, pre-Star Trek teleportation here. And it's pretty great for Philip because he doesn't have to walk all the way back to Jerusalem. <laughs> but also consider this. This means, this means now that this Ethiopian eunuch is going to have a great opportunity to explain the gospel to the guys carrying the chariot because they still have about 1,100 miles to get home. And Philip's going to have plenty of time to tell them what he has learned. I want you to go ahead and write this last thing down. Only God knows the long-term consequences of our, dis, our, of our obedience. Uh, the ancient church historian Eusebius says that this eunuch and his band of servants went on to plant the first church in Africa. And that is so great because that means before there are white Western European converts to Jesus in the book of Acts, there is already a thriving church meeting in what was the capital of Africa. And every once in a while today, you'll hear some undereducated PhD at a second university say Christianity is a Western thing. That's not true. It started in the East. It started in the Middle East, and then it went to Africa. Actually, truth is, us Westerners, we were late to the game. But here's the major point. 
Here's what I hope you've been seeing through this whole chapter. God used an ordinary guy on mission, sent out to spread the gospel. God prepared Philip, God prepared the eunuch, and he brought the two together. And here's what's really interesting to me. We often think of the church as this place where we all gather uh, to kind of uh, bask in whatever gifts certain people in the church have, maybe up on a stage of some kind. That's not what the Bible says the church is about at all. The Bible says the church is all of us, every part of the body, out in the world, scattered, sent, rubbing shoulders with the people God puts us into contact with. It's been fascinating, I think, the last decade or so as we have watched in our own nation the diversity grow, as we have seen God bringing the nations to us. They're right here. And some of you spend every day of your working week rubbing shoulders with Ethiopian eunuchs, with people from another part of the world, with people from a different faith, as well as the people from America who don't believe in Jesus. God has put you there for a reason. God has something for you to say. And so I just want to leave you with this question. Are you available for God to lead you? Are you asking God for his grace to speak? And when he gives you that grace, are you trusting him and speaking the words that he gives you to say so that others may know, so that others may believe, so that others may be brought into God's very own family. Would you bow your heads as we pray? God, our Father, we give you thanks for your word which challenges us, for your word which calls us to obey you. And Lord, as you have spoken very clearly to each one of us in our own particular individual lives, we ask that we would hear you and that we would obey what you've told us to do. We ask that you would equip us and use us for your honor and for your glory this week as we follow you. We pray these things now in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. I thought I was going to be late here. And I'm-